This is Josh Summers, and you're listening to Everyday Sublime, the podcast that endeavors to explore a full-spectrum spirituality that includes the highs, the uncomfortable lows, and the plateaus in between. And in conversations and in Dharma talk reflections, I try to flesh out uh, explorations of this theme. And today you're listening to a Dharma talk I gave this week, uh, where I explore the the four foundations, what I'm calling the four foundations of practicing yin. This is loosely related to practicing yin yoga, yin meditation, but really a yin-informed approach to the broader themes of spirituality. And I'm going to give you the quotation that I end with from Ralph Waldo Emerson as a teaser for the talk uh, itself. And uh, the reason I'm giving this to you is that I think this quotation really speaks to some of the dynamics of meditation, but particularly the relationship between receptivity and creativity, which I speak to towards the end of the talk. So here's the quote from Emerson. Great genial power, one would almost say, consists in not being original at all, in being altogether receptive, in letting the world do all, and suffering the spirit of the hour to pass unobstructed through the mind. Every time I read that, I sort of pause in silence because of its the profundity of how poetically it speaks to the meditative process. But I really get into that in this talk, and we begin in the talk exploring the themes of safety and relaxation, both in yoga, in community, and in meditation practice. But before I give you the talk, I just want to say, if you would like support in your practice, if you'd be, if you'd like to be part of a community, and if you'd like to be part of a conversation, an ongoing conversation about practicing Yin Yoga, Qigong, what we're calling and will be calling fluid Yin Yoga and Yin meditation, if you'd like to join us on the path and and really benefit from the the, the community experience of practicing with others do join us in the Riverbird Sangha. There's a link for you in the show notes. We offer you two free weeks of practice with us, and we also give you a free copy of my new ebook, The What, Why, and How of Yin Yoga. But mostly, we really look forward to practicing with you and having your voice in our community. Without further ado, here is today's Dharma talk on practicing yin. Great to see you all. Great to be with you all again. Welcome and good morning to those I didn't get to personally greet. Um, so for this session, for this reflection, I'm going to weave two questions. I'm going to try to weave two questions that came in from the Sangha this last week. Both of the questions came in from participants that are live right now. I don't, I won't be mentioning their name and I'll, I'll speak to that kind of why I'm, how I navigate some boundaries around anonymity and personal safety and privacy. Um, but before I sort of approach these questions, I want to just say that if you noticed in your email at the end of last week, Terry and I sent out, um, a weekly roundup of yin-related themes or yin-related practices and themes. And um, this is kind of, that was the inaugural uh, 
issue of that email form. So this is a, an evolution in the newsletter in a way. We're, on Fridays, our intention is to send out now a, a circular of, of information related to practicing yin yoga or yin meditation. We're loosely calling it Practicing Yin, Your Weekly Roundup. And as one person said, wow, there's a lot here. <laughs> you know, we I mentioned... Uh, a, a quote that I was that we've been pondering from uh, one of my guests on the podcast. I gave you three podcast recent recent podcast links. There was an article that uh, I published that got published last week in yogau.com on the four foundations of Yin Yoga. There were the list of our class themes for the week, so the Sangha members can see have a digest of what the classes are. And there was a workshop or two we recommended. Um, and so, yes, there is a lot there. And I want to just give a tip on how to maybe optimize your relationship to that digest. And the the, the tip is, the, the suggestion is, um, it's, it's how I've approached a lot of creative practices or creative endeavors, which is simply to say, uh, you might get exposed to an influence. You might get exposed to a talk. You might listen to a talk. You might read a book. You might uh, go to a concert and and hear a, a beautiful selection of music. You might buy a record. You might buy, read, be reading a book. You expose yourself to a creative, a creative experience. And um, often there's a, an assumption that to really, really get the most out of that experience, you have to digest and assimilate every single piece of it. Whether you know whether it's a talk, so let's, let's use a Dharma talk for example. You get a twenty-five minute talk right now, and to feel like you're going to get the most out of it, you might have a voice that says, "I need to know and understand everything that gets said and how it relates to my practice, etc." But the um, this this is a kind of a high bar. That's a high bar of of of, of comprehension, assimilation, and um, utilization. And one of the monks that I worked with, uh, Ajahn Sachito, this British monk, would often say, "You know, in an, in a sixty minute talk, if you hear one sentence in a sixty minute talk, if you hear one sentence that really comes alive for you, that really speaks to you." and really activates something in your practice, he said, that would be a good hour spent. That's a wise hour, even if you just got one sentence. So the theme, that, the way that relates to the Sangha Digest or the Practicing Yin Weekly Roundup is, this is our attempt to sort of condense and collate or curate kind of some central themes we're, we're exploring in our practice and teaching. But as you scan through that, I want to encourage you to just, you know, scan through it, uh, browse through it. As you browse through, if, if there's a, a title or a theme or a fragment of a sentence that really speaks to you, that's what I would recommend you explore. So we give it to you on Friday with the idea, here's something for the weekend. Here's something for your weekend practice to support you, possibly. And if there's something there, if there's one thing, that would be a, a uh, practicing yin weekly roundup well served if you got one thing out of it. But don't feel like you need to like listen to the four podcasts that I suggest 
or like read the six articles and uh, memorize, commit to memory, the quote that we're pondering. You don't have to do that. But just if there's one thing, let that inform and, and touch your practice. So um, now related to that, that, that digest, the Practicing Yin Weekly Roundup, the article that I did link to, um, which I would recommend reading at some point, um, because I'm going to be returning to it and, and, and encouraging a dialogue around some of the themes I explored in that article. But the article is about the four foundations of, I called yin yoga, but it's really the four foundations of a yin approach to practice or four foundations of practicing yin. And the first foundation is safety is safety, making sure that we are safe as we practice. And on the physical side, that relates to individuals, i.e. you, taking responsibility for your own experience and practice and using Terry and me or other teachers as supports in your ability to take better care of yourself. Um, But I want to speak about the role of safety as a foundational principle of practicing yin in terms of uh, some, some, something I re- referenced last time around uh, the boundaries that I'm gently trying to establish within our shared space of coming together online in the Sangha. So how am I intending, what, how is my intention of creating a safety, a safe container here for people to practice and to develop their practice. How is that um, developed or achieved? And this this little theme of the talk today is in response to a member who shared this um, after our last session. Um, The share was this, they said, after last Monday's session, it made me think it might be nice to have more interactions with other Sangha members, more interactions, if others felt the same way. The member says, when I listen to someone's share, so one of the shares from last week, when I listen to someone's share in that session, partly because of what I'm accustomed to in other communities, and the share was very a very vulnerable open share, but this person saying, because of what I'm accustomed to, in other communities, I really felt like giving her a hug, a virtual hug, of course. But they observed, the, the, person, the member says, I observed nobody was doing that. Nobody in the this, in this Sangha was doing that, and it seems unusual in the Sangha. And I was not sure whether such gesture would be welcome. This is not necessarily the best way to interact, but it might feel, might be, I, I feel it might be nice to be able to do so. So the the heart of this question or the heart of this observation is how can we, how do we interact and can we, what what are the guidelines around interaction between ourselves, between each other in in this group? And um, first I want to just empathize with where the spirit of this reflection is coming from. That when we, when I've been in a group and uh, when somebody, a member of the group has open their heart, expressed their vulnerability, their fear, their whatever difficult emotional pattern or dynamic they're working with. And that's shared in a, in a container of stillness, often in a, a meditative setting, 
like we're in, people have gathered themselves, become still and receptive. And then to hear the poignancy of a share like that, I know what it's like, what this person's sharing, that the, the heart spirit wants to come forward and reach out and connect. At least mine does. I want to say, I'm so sorry. That's what you're going, oh, wow, that's, that must be so hard. There's a gesture of wanting to connect. And so the question I'm raising is, um, how do we, how do we, as a, as a culture, a practicing culture here, create a safety for vulnerability, for intimate expression that stays safe? And I would say stays safe and promotes our, the deepening of all of our individual practices. And the answer for me is part of the guideline that I'm going to say here is that one of the guidelines I, I have learned from my own years of practice in meditative communities and my own training in meditation is to actually emphasize less interaction, less direct interaction between students. Um, and so one of the ways, at least in the online form, that uh, we establish that as a loose boundary is that we gently request, and here this is a gentle request, we gently request to not do the virtual hug thing so much, to not um, kind of communicate directly or even or broadly in the chat. To leave just to leave the chat alone, except for really when we're everyone's volunteering to, to share. So you can type your name in there. That's sort of how we use the chat here. Now you might hear that and think, gosh, that's kind of harsh. <laughs> can't is he saying you can't use the chat? I'm saying, no, we request you not use the chat. You know, we're not going to uh, you know, kick you out of the sangha if you accidentally tap something in the chat. But it's the I want to explain the the reasoning around this. And it really relates to ways in which I have seen this practice develops. And the practice in general, or, or more broadly could be said, that the, the practice is a, a way of creating conditions for solitude conditions for solitude and by solitude i mean the conditions to be with your own mind and i say relatively independent of the input from other minds we can't be a hard like obviously we're in a community here someone's saying something that's input from a mind and if one of you shares something, that's input from another mind. But the solitude piece is how we effectively uh, internalize this experience. And we internalize what we hear. We internalize what we share. And we reflect on that internalization within our own mind and heart and our own practice. And that was the container that I learned both at the Insight Meditation Society on retreats for, you know, several decades of retreats, 
but also in the container of the the meditation teacher training <clears throat> that I did for three years with um, some of the guests on my last podcast, Linda and Nelly uh, were both teachers in that in that training. And the idea is that by not by resisting, and it's it's sort of a skillful resistance of the energy to reach out. By resisting that, there are two things that occur. One is that the person who's sharing knows they'll share and they have a sense of what they can anticipate in terms of the response, which is a channeled response from either me or you know another member could respond to something with, with, to what someone else said. But there won't be a kind of a chat a chat column pile up of things that could really distract and take could kind of fragment the person who's sharing could fragment their ability to stay present to what's going on um and that's what you know when i was in on retreats at the insight meditation society as some of you will likely know on a week retreat say 7 days 9 days there's several there's a handful of times where you will meet in a group format or an a one-to-one format with a teacher to have group interviews, sort of sharing of the practice with a teacher. And in the group interviews, there's a circle that forms, and it, it can go around the circle or it can be more spontaneous within the circle, but everybody gets a chance to just talk about their practice. But the guideline is nobody really, it, there's no crosstalk as, as they might say in group dynamics, there's no crosstalk. And that is a, is a container of safety so that the person sharing um, can can really be with what's what they're sharing and not have it get get fragmented or kind of re-explained by somebody else or um, kind of have them feeling that they get knocked off by, by someone else's comment. But the other side of that is what I was really getting at the beginning was that when there's that agreement of speaking from your own experience and hearing from others' experience and not directly interacting around it, that that allows the share the person who's sharing, that allows their experience to be, really be listened to and then heard within your own heart. So when you're not caught up in having to respond, more energy pours into the process of receiving and reflecting. And it's and it's that energy that I want to uh, highlight or try to emphasize and, and name that we are, in a sense, I use this phrase a lot. I borrow it. Like I came up to it, came up, came up with this phrase on a retreat that Terry and I taught the last retreat, which is um, the concept of social solitude. That in our way, our practice together as a sangha is a form of social solitude. In that we're coming together, that's the social piece, but we're coming together in a way to be in quietude with our own experience and our own themes, the, our, the topics of our life, and the way that those themes um, reveal or can reveal the Dharma in our life. So that's um, how I'm thinking about a little loosely about the, the theme of, of 
how we interact um, here in service of safety, i.e. the first foundation of practicing yin, this is a coll our collective safety. This relates to why, what I said last time around, I'm not here to be prescriptive around what you do. I'm not here to give dogmatic rules around what ethical behavior is, what good practice is, what wise decisions and social action might be. But I'm here to facilitate a culture of questions, of practice questions. And through our own introspection, our own receptivity, our own reflection, I feel that we all come will come to individual insights that make sense for our own unique individual lives around how to ap apply the Dharma in our life. And this is in part of what psychologists refer to as the U-turn, where we, we, the U-turn goes back into ourselves. We turn into ourselves to, to really touch into what are we experiencing? What am I experiencing? What am I feeling? And what I want to connect this now to is if we establish safety, in a variety of different dimensions. We establish safety in our community through intentional guidelines of um, not uh, over-speaking to somebody or um, interrupting someone or re directly reaching out. Um, but if we have that safety, and this is why I think we're seeing it, is, is that people feel able to, to share and be vulnerable. And I, if you've been here from the beginning, as some of you have, I see, at least from the beginning, an increase, a gradual increase in the sense of security, comfortability, familiarity with the process, safety in the group, and the um, what's opening up in terms of our discussions. But the discussions are going, in some ways, deeper into more challenging and ultimately fruitful themes, I think. But the safety relates to the second principle of practicing yin, which, which is relaxation. And if you're not able to, re, to, to have a, an environment of safety, and I, and I should say relative safety, because the conditions of safety are going to be different for everybody. But within the relative safety, how, how does that safety enable us to relax? And that was the second question that came in, it came in a few weeks ago, actually. But the question was from another member, I would like you when it's possible and appropriate to make the links more deeply between relaxation and meditation. What are the links between relaxation and meditation? For example, this morning in the practice we did, was it a deep relaxation that was supposed to lead to meditation? Was it a deep relaxation that was supposed to lead to meditation? Then they say, it is like I am, if I'm afraid of staying only in relaxation when I do take a supported pose and not meditating for, they said for true or like for real, I think is, I know this person speaks French uh, as their first language, I believe. 
So I think what they mean by that is it is they're afraid that if they only relax when they take a pose, that they won't be really meditating. It won't be real, true meditation. And they say, I know I'm exaggerating a bit here, but I'm just trying to express what I'm feeling. And I know that feeling. The feeling is that with relaxation, that's not enough. That there's got to be some hard work here. There's got to be, you know, um, something we're doing to really maybe conquer something in our mind or heart or attain something. So I'll just, I'll offer a few reflections on this um, for now. And I know we'll be sitting shortly. Um, but the this question of what is the relationship between relaxation and meditation? Great question. And that's one that we can continue to explore together. And I want to start with a, a loose definition that many of you have heard from me before, but I want to just put on the table, what do we mean when we say meditation? What do we mean? What are we talking about when we say meditation? And there are many styles of meditation out there and certainly many, many systems of meditation when you dig deeply enough, you see that they are pointing to specific experiences, whether it's a state of samadhi or a specific insight of perception that comes. There, there seems to be a goal. And how do we achieve a goal if we're not working at achieving the goal? How does relaxation fit in with that? So first I want to say that I like the working definition of meditation that I use regularly is that meditation is whatever you experience. So it's the sum total of your experiences that you have when you intend to meditate. Now, you could have the intention to meditate when you're out and running. You could have the intention to meditate when you're out hiking, when you're shopping, when you're doing the cleaning the toilet, when you're getting groceries, walking the dog, uh, doing your yoga practice, sitting in meditation, gardening, knitting, uh, journaling, what else? But making your bed. You could have the intention to meditate in any of those activities. And by the definition I gave, all of that would be classified as meditation. Whatever experience you have when you're acting on the intention, that's your meditation. And so that's where some people say, my meditation is when I run. That's where I get my meditation. My meditation is when I surf. My meditation is when I go visit my grandmother or look after my child. And that all is true. It does, it, and it's like a little bit like saying, hiking is the experience you have when you're in nature walking. The walking in nature could be considered hiking, particularly if there's some elevation involved. Meditation is the experiences you have when you act on the intention to meditate. Does that all mean all meditation is going to be the same? Does that mean all hiking is going to be the same? Does that mean walking on a fairly level park is the same as hiking in a mountain is the same as going to the himalayas it's all hiking but the experience is going to be very different and 
I will suggest here that yes, your meditation is whatever experiences you 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 have while you're practicing. And all of the experience, I want to be emphasized here, all the experience we have can teach us when we learn how to orient to that experience with the tools of the Dharma. All experience. There is no experience you can have in meditation that can't be used, cannot that can't be explored with the tools of the Dharma for growth and understanding. That said, just like there's a wide variety of different ways of hiking, there's a wide variety of meditative experiences available to the human mind, to the human heart. And I'm interested in how meditation directly connects practitioners with really the totality of the human experience. How to like the whole human experience, which includes the anguish, pain, really difficult dimensions of the human experience, and also includes the ecstatic, transcendent, blissful peaks of human potential, holding them both together. So how does relaxation fit in here? What is the role of relaxation? I think what I want to, in just the interest of time, I want to try to be brief here. The way I see relaxation fitting in is that in connection with the Dharma, I mean, the teachings of the Buddha and others, but particularly the Buddha, his primary insight, or one of his big insights, was that no experience is capable of giving lasting satisfaction. And that particularly includes meditative experiences. So no blissful, transcendent, peak experience, however wonderful it may be, is permanent. And because it's impermanent, not permanent, it will not, the peace, the, the, the blissful state will not provide an abiding peace. And now there's there's a few things that are going off in my head, so I have to sort of edit, uh, improvise on this on the moment here. But when when the heart really starts to see through practice that experience all experiences are incapable of providing lasting, abiding peace, the insight to let go emerges. And this is not, and I, I try to say it, this is not an intellectual letting go of something, hoping it would go away. It's much more of a letting go aligned with the energy of non-grasping, of non-grasping 
after something for satisfaction for, or to seek lasting satisfaction in something through grasping. But non-grasping, this is where people think, this, this gets back to the idea of, of like the, some of the themes of non-violence around whether non-violence is passive, is, non, is non-grasping passive? Or is non-grasping something else? I can see how non, a, a teaching of letting go, a teaching of non-grasping could be interpreted through the lens of passivity or non-engagement or detachment. But that's not the way either it's been taught to me and it's also not what I've come to know from my own practice. So non-grasping, I think, can be described best or was described best by Ajahn Shah when he said something very simple. He said, do everything with a mind that lets go. And then there's more to the quote where he says, if you let go a little bit, you'll have a little piece. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, your problems with the world will have come to an end. And everybody hears letting go is where it's at. And they forget the first word of the whole passage. Do. Do everything with a mind that lets go. This is essentially the teaching of the Bhagavad Gita from India. Act without attachment to the fruit of action. Now, what does that mean in terms of relaxation and meditation? Well, today I want to suggest that relaxing as an intention in practice reveals grasping. And, you know, I was playing with this over the week in my own sitting and finding like, as I relax, yes, it's true. I can see how is my mind grasping for something? Maybe it's the pattern of thinking about plan, like planning thoughts. I'm planning out something. Or there's the, I mentioned before, the backseat meditator voice in me that's saying, if you just if you just tune into the breath a little bit more, you know, there's a little bit more of joy, a little bit more pleasure that's going to come into the experience. Then you can hold on to that and and nurture the it's so feels so good. There's no, that's okay, right? <laughs> and on one level it is okay. But there's what I could feel was the incessant grasping for something. And so that that became a, a really interesting thread for me to feel, how am I grasping in any given moment? And what does it mean to really let my nervous system, as I feel through the somatics of my muscles and tissue, what, is it, what does it mean to let my nervous system non-grasp? What does it mean to non-grasp after thoughts? Or to relate to thoughts without grasping. And this is this is important. I mean, 
this is the, in some ways the heart of Buddhism, at least according to, again, another teacher, a friend of Ajahn Sachito's, this other teacher, Ajahn Amaro, who often describes the end of suffering, the end of suffering, and that's an experience internally. I'm not talking about pain in the external world. I'm talking about the end of suffering within our own heart is, in his articulation, connected to the reality, experiencing reality without grasping. But the heart, the head will hear that and think, well, non-grasping goes into this passive thing and then you're a doormat and there's no change. That's not it. It's a non-grasp, it's, it's a non-grasping that that flows with and acts spontaneously to what needs to be done from a deeper understanding, a deeper connection, a deeper perspective. So those are the those are just some reflections. I'm going to pause myself here now and, and end the talk. But I want to end with a quotation um, that really picks up on the the next two foundations of practicing yin. So from safety, the, the, the considerations to safety that I reflected on at the beginning, how safety establishes an ability to relax. Relaxation, the theme today was is going to reveal grasping and invite us to practice non-grasping as a question. What does it mean to non-grasp, but to do everything with a mind that doesn't cling? From that, from, from relaxation, uh, the third foundation of yin that I'm naming is receptivity. We really receive what's experienced. This gets back to being able to really listen to and receive the shares, the reflections, to receive our own experience, to receive it. And the from really intimately connecting with what we're receiving and holding space within that receptivity, the fourth principle is creative insight. Creativity arises. Insights around how we can do something differently in a creative way that's generative, that's healing, that's connecting, that's transforming. And the quotation I want to just finish with uh, was was actually a quotation in uh, a newsletter that I do recommend highly um, from the writer Maria Popova. Maria Popova had has a wonderful newsletter. She used to call it Brain Pickings. It's now called The Marginalia, but it's reflections on nature, spirituality, science, poetry, art, from oh, just an enormous encyclopedic uh, draw that she she pulls from. But in this newsletter recently, she quoted uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson on the, the power of genius. And Emerson says in, in this quote, great genial power, meaning great genius, great genial power, one almost could say, consists in not being original at all. So it's not about being original, great genius, but rather great genial power is connected more to being altogether receptive, to being receptive in letting the world do all 
and suffering the spirit of the hour to pass unobstructed through the mind. And when I heard that last bit, I thought that is actually an interesting reflection for meditation. And I'll just paraphrase it again for as a prompt for practice. What does it mean to practice receptivity in letting the world do all? And I, all I mean in terms of meditation, like while we're meditating, what, what does it mean to let the world do all? The world of your experience, the world of sensation, the world of thought, the world of sound, the world of uh, images, to let the world of experience do all. And suffering the spirit of the hour, the spirit of the 20 minutes, to pass unobstructed through the mind. So I'll be taking that into my practice now. But what does it mean to let, to practice the spirit of the hour, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant? filled with loss or suffering or joy, but let the spirit of the practice of this time pass unobstructed through your heart and mind. Okay, I hope you enjoyed those reflections, and I hope particularly the reflections around non-grasping towards the end and the prompts I gave. I hope those open up some avenues of rich exploration in your own practice. And I'd love to hear from you what you're noticing and what you're finding. Send me an email with any th thoughts, comments, questions, observations. My email is josh at joshsummers.net. And lastly, if you one more call to those that might be interested in the support of our community, the support of our ongoing practice community, the Riverbird Sangha. If you'd like uh, access to classes, our whole library of classes, um, which actually I should say many teachers in the Sangha, those that teach yin yoga themselves, teachers are increasingly sharing how much they value being able to, to scroll through the library to get inspiration and ideas for their own classes. So if you'd like, if any of that sounds interesting to you, please do consider joining. We give you two free weeks, plus a copy of the What, Why, and How of Yin Yoga, my new ebook on yin yoga. And um, we just really look forward to practicing with you. So we hope to see you soon. Until next episode, take good care, stay safe, keep practicing, and I'll see you soon.